A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media and other spoken word projects. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. We'll have your words from social media and much more right after this. Jeff Corey made a name for himself in the 1940s as a character actor in films like Joan of Arc and The Killers. Everything changed in 1951 when he refused to name names and was promptly blacklisted. He embarked on a career as one of the industry's most revered acting instructors. His memoir, Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, written by Jeff Corey with his daughter Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that continually tests his ability to forgive and forget. In The Borrowed Souls, written by Paul B. Kohler, Jack Duffy will be compelled to make decision after decision about who gets to live and who will lose their soul. In war-torn Okinawa, there is the story told by a young kamikaze pilot only moments before flying his fighter plane into the side of an American battleship. I know why the waters of the sea taste of salt is written by the poetic master of modern-day horror, Steve Vernon. All three of these great audiobooks are narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to them today by visiting audible.com. And we're back, everyone, with another Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by, as I said before. Today, well, is the first show with a new microphone. How about that? (laughs) Um, Not so important to you. Well, maybe it is, but important to me nonetheless. Anyway, we got some good things from social media today um, from Facebook, as usual. Um. We got four things, as I usually try to do. I usually try to put four things in because I want that to be the meat of the show or the, I guess, the star attraction of the show. Um, You notice how everything in the news is either about three, is either about one of three things like politics and family, and nowadays, especially coronavirus. It's it's usually three things. Family, coronavirus, politics. Well, I guess you could, you could also, uh, you could say, you could put entertainment in there, but that's kind of a, a normal, a regular thing. But lately... It's been about those three. Um, 
we're going to have something about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And and there's one called Who Mama Was, which is a, a death in the family. Uh, and one about called films and features but we're gonna we're gonna start out with um with which one which one are we starting out with okay we're gonna start out with who mama was this is about a recent death in the family um and just talking about who this person was it's very simple uh this person had a different posting before from Facebook, uh, either last week or the week before. And uh, it's very good. Here it is. Who Mama Was by Shannon I had a very supportive and wonderful stepfather. He was a provider and referred to himself as the Papa. Many people have told me how fortunate my mama was that he took care of Dana and I as his own. He generally was the ultimate provider. However, I truly feel like my mom never credited herself enough for being such a hard worker and for helping provide for their large family. She worked tirelessly, morning to late nights, for the theater, the college, the community, and ultimately the church. While many of her friends had been able to retire, she was still having to work and help support them. Of course, she wanted to, but she often told me, as she neared her seventies, that she was tired, so very tired. She'd been performing in her community since she was only five. She was dancing in nightclubs and for local events as a teenager in high school, working straight out of school and around the clock, then got married, had children, and often worked two jobs to help our biological dad, who really was not a good provider. Keith was so very good to her, and they were able to create a life together. She worked as hard, if not harder, and still managed the house and the kids I feel particularly protective over this part of her accomplishments, as I have often heard how lucky I was when I had met Mike and he accepted all four of my children as his own. I genuinely do give all stepdads the credit they deserve for stepping into the lives of children and adding happiness. I just feel like my mama and I did everything and anything we could do as the mamas and wives of the household to contribute financially, emotionally, and physically. My mom was a powerhouse of a woman, never-ending energy, non-stop creativity, and the ability to command a salary for her talents. Up until almost 70, she was still earning a salary as a minister, still holding huge community events, and still donating her time to those around her. I know she will always be grateful for the role Keith had in our lives, as I am. I just also see her as his complete equal, 
and am so proud of the team that they were for their family and all of the people they touched throughout the years. In politics, I think um, you hear from a small handful of uh, of people, some women, uh, who are criticized as being very outspoken or put forth plans, visions of, of what they think America should be and aren't afraid to put it out there. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been criticized, especially by the right and by the left, but not nearly as much as the right, as having, you know, crazy plans. The Green New Deal is insane. It'll never work. But this is the usual thing from the right. You know, don't do any work. Just criticize the other guy. That's how you get to the top. That's how these people operate. That's their... Their mo, as you call it, don't uh, don't ever listen to anybody. That's their thing. But uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, or AOC, as she's now called, uh, is a very smart person, and I think uh, if the people who criticize her would have read this posting. Um, they would at least know a little bit more about her before they open their big mouth about her. This is very good. About AOC by Marcus. I have quite a few friends commenting on her as an idiot, out of her depth. I beg to differ. I find her wonderfully refreshing, even if I disagree on certain policy. I bet you didn't know this about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. As a teenager, she won second prize in the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair with a microbiology research project on the effect of antioxidants on the lifespan of the nematode C elegans. In a show of appreciation for her efforts, the International Astronomical Union named a small asteroid after her. Number 23238, Ocasio-Cortez. In high school, she took part in the National Hispanic Institute's Lorenzo de Zavala Youth Legislative Session. She later became the LDZ Secretary of State while she attended Boston University. Ocasio-Cortez had a John F. Lopez Fellowship. During college, she served as an intern in the Immigration Office during the final year of U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy's tenure. She graduated cum laude from Boston University's College of Arts and Sciences in 2011, majoring in international relations and economics. Those, like conservatives, who call her names and put her down, are intimidated by her intelligence and are afraid of how hot her fire burns. Better make sure that the people you attack aren't out of your league. Go ahead and attack this young woman. I'm going to get the popcorn. This next one is by 
of course, my friend Rodney, who is a big contributor to the podcast. It's called Films and Features. What he was talking about is how, especially on Netflix, you have all these series that could easily be two-hour movies. When I saw, when I finally saw the the movie about uh, playing chess, uh, The Queen's Gambit, when I finally saw it, I kept asking, you know, because I was glued to it. I gladly watched every single episode of that series. But then I thought to myself, you know, they do they do a lot of these series type things on network Netflix, excuse me, and uh, and other streaming services as well. And you think, yeah, I wonder if they could make this into a regular two hour movie. You know, I mean, The Queen's Gambit, there were things in there that I thought, mm, this scene is important, but it's a little long. If they did that kind of trimming through the whole thing, could that have been a two-hour movie? I don't know. I can't seem to decide on that particular one, but I bet I could on some others. Here's Films and Features by Rodney. TV Movies and features by Rodney. I was just talking to a friend who is a great film buff about something. Of the films that came out this year, granted I haven't seen all the nominees for Best Picture, but I have seen more than half, and I have to say, none of them feel like features to me. They feel like TV movies. Now, look, when I say this, I'm not making a value judgment. There are lots of bad features and lots of brilliant TV movies, but the films that I've seen this year just don't feel like features. It isn't just because I've watched them on the small screen. There are lots of movies I watch on TV that are undeniably features, and many times in the past that I have only seen a feature on the small screen, but it still felt like a feature. It isn't just a matter of scope. Certainly films like Nomadland or Chicago 7 have scope. But neither felt like a feature to me, and nothing has stayed with me the way great films do. I've had no desire to see anything more than once, which is odd for me. For instance, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood four times in the first two weeks. The same with The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I saw The Irishman three times, but thinking back on it, I think I did because it was the first film I remember that felt this way to me. It had all the elements of a feature, a large story, film actors, but it felt like a great HBO film and not a feature. I don't think this has to do with film versus digital or new trends in framing. I really think this might be a change in us in the way we tell and receive story. Again, I'm not saying worse or better, just different. Action movies have changed because of the importance of the Asian market. A film like John Wick or the Equalizer series are really Asian films in the way they play. It's a different sort of structure, action coming from inside character rather than as a result of action outside the character. But it isn't the same thing with either drama or comedy. I wonder if we are just seeing story smaller. 
not the size of it, but the point of view. Okay, take two points of view. Someone in the 1940s whose only option to experience film is on a big screen, and someone in 2021 watching a John Ford film on their iPhone. It's not just a matter of size. There's accessibility and the shared versus the solitary experience. It's interesting. Story is our blood as a species. It feels like it's changing. I'm just rambling here. I'm curious. Do you guys feel the same? Isn't it something how this coronavirus has completely screwed up the scheduling in our lives? It's just amazing. And, and when I say screwed up the scheduling, I'm talking about important things and even not so important things. Um, retirement, that's a big deal for many people. Um, or just planning meals every day, you know, or, or messing up your daily schedule. Oh, I'm so tired of it, and I'm sure you are too. This is called The One-Two Punch of Dislocation. It's by Francine. The One-Two Punch of Dislocation by Francine Reflecting on the last year of lockdown and retirement, or what I like to call the one-two punch of dislocation, here is what I have learned. 1. When you rise in the morning, you best have something purposeful to do, or the whole day feels like you are swimming through mashed potatoes. 2. Remove all firearms from the house, because you are home 24 hours a day with a person you have known for 30-plus years, but you have never been in the same place together for more than six hours at a time. Without a gun, you must learn to sharpen your negotiating skills, as well as your toilet cleaning skills. You cannot shoot the grime off the inside of a toilet. Well, actually you can. But when you are done, there will be no place to engage in your morning constitutional. 3. When you have a brother in a nursing home and the pandemic makes it impossible to see him, you better learn Zoom. And uh, when your verbose Italian family shows no aptitude for Zoom etiquette, do not threaten them with the gun you no longer own. You wouldn't be able to harm them anyway, even though your brain-damaged brother thinks you are all in the same room. 4. Your Facebook friends will become much more important to you than in the past. And that is freaky because they will also get on your nerves from time to time. For those of you who can no longer see this, I tried to hide the unfriend button, but Facebook would not give me that option. I am so sorry. 5. Your asynchronous students will become beached after week three, so you can expect a steady stream of excuses for missed assignments, which will become increasingly personal with each passing week, the details of which I will leave to your extremely creative imaginations. 6. Your one-hour daily walk is a good time to talk to your dead sister-in-law, and thanks to masking, you can talk to her out loud 
without someone alerting protective services. 7. You will miss Olivia Paulini and Zach Paulini so acutely you will cry sometimes. 8. You will begin attributing meaningful characteristics to your junk mail. Last week, I became convinced the solution to the pandemic lies somewhere in the beyond section of Bed Bath & Beyond. 9. And finally, if you had the misfortune to be dislocated from your job and in a work-from-home situation five months before your planned retirement, you will miss your job and the family of co-workers who made you laugh, decoded the digital world for you, baked for you, made coffee for you, understood when they could not talk to you because you fell down a grating rabbit hole, laughed at your one-liners, and generally made you feel human. I love you all. Please feel free to share what you have learned with me. And just so you know, I have never owned a gun. But I have been to Oklahoma. And that is, of course, the doorbell to our archives department. Our wonderful whatever's section this, this week has to do with one that I posted um, a good number of months ago about Tony Bennett. It's a, a, a short, very short little interview from The Tonight Show and, of course, a review of a concert he did in Chicago. And... Um, just a little bit of a, the song rags to riches. And I hope you enjoy that. Here we are. Here's a picture of you and Frank Sinatra eating hot dogs in tuxedos <laughs> in a place in Miami, which I just think is so fun. Uh, you and Frank have a, a, a cool relationship. You had a great relationship. Well, uh, I was, you know, I was his favorite, and he was my favorite, yeah. and I couldn't get over it. Because really? he, was, he was a phenomenal artist, a beautiful singer, and a great person. And did you, how did you meet? Do you remember meeting Frank Sinatra? I met him at the Paramount Theater. I went backstage when I, I had my first two million selling records because of you and Cold Cold Heart. Wow. And I, oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I was just troubled about, I felt nervous about an audience. And he taught me that the audience are your friends. They come to see you. And he changed my whole psychology about there's no such thing as a bad audience. There's a bad performance, but there's not a bad audience. Do you do? Uh... <laughs> we have the best here, yeah. We love them, yeah. <laughs> they, they prove that every single night. Uh, they, uh, but I, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a question about the... Uh, there's, there's a story that you were uh, performing at the Hollywood Bowl and you were doing um, Lost in the Stars. Right. And as you were doing the song, a shooting star went over the Hollywood Bowl. Is that true? Is that a true story? It's a true story. And, and uh, the late Ray Charles called me up in the morning. He said, how'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> From the Chicago Tribune, Tony Bennett at Ravinia Review. At 92, he still surprises with emotional impact. By Howard Reich, September 9, 2018. What we heard and saw Saturday night at the Ravinia Festival 
wasn't merely historic. For if 92-year-old Tony Bennett simply had made his way through roughly two dozen songs, he would have earned another spot in the record books. How many non-agenarian jazz singers, after all, can perform such a feat of control, stamina, and memory? But it was the depth of Bennett's insights, the breadth of his expressive range, and the delicious idiosyncrasies of his interpretations, with its abundant alternative notes and operatic flourishes, that rendered this performance a tour de force. Even factoring out the matter of age, Bennett reminded listeners why his career continually seems to expand, for the durability of his art, though impressive, ultimately is overshadowed by its profundity, which keeps listeners coming back for more. True, like Frank Sinatra toward the end of his performance career, Bennett proved cunning in deploying his vocal and musical resources to best advantage. When a long note started to stray in pitch, Bennett instantly cut it short, just as Sinatra did in his 70s. In the rare instance when a word or two eluded Bennett, he simply picked up the lyric in the next phrase. When he summoned a bit less tone than he had anticipated, he nimbly tamped down his dynamics overall, recalibrating his performance on the spot. These extremely minor concessions to Bennett's exalted age became increasingly unnecessary as Bennett's performance gathered momentum. More important, they proved utterly beside the point when it came to the emotional impact of Bennett's work. For those lucky enough to have attended this concert heard what happens when a formidable artist addresses repertoire he has been singing for more than half a century, old songs are reimagined through the wisdom that only a very long life can yield. No one, for instance, sings music of Michel Legrand as knowingly as Bennett, who long ago made How Do You Keep the Music Playing, with its heartbreaking lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, his personal domain. So what, one wondered, could Bennett possibly add to what already stands as the definitive account of this music? Plenty, starting with an audaciously slow tempo, a knack for substituting melody notes that the great Legrand had not envisioned, and somehow conjuring an aura of stillness and reverie in a vast outdoor setting. If Bennett had been delivering this signature ballad in a tiny jazz club, it may not have conveyed much more intimacy than it did on this occasion. At the same time, however, the wordless Belcanto line with which Bennett closed the piece would have been applauded in the opera house, just as it were here, generating an instant and richly deserved standing ovation, one of several. Bennett reached deep into his history to revive Boulevard of Broken Dreams, an early hit he stripped to its essence. Accompanied only by a walking bass line, the singer offered a stark and unblinking reading of its bitter lyric, a searing testament to his gifts as tragedian. The two other high points of the evening were staples of Bennett's repertoire. He opened slowly and introspectively in Duke Ellington's solitude, holding his hands together as if in prayer, as he sang, Dear Lord above, bring back my love. When Bennett repeated that phrase at the end, 
what had been a fervent whisper became a shattering cry, as intense a moment as any Bennett produced on this night. And in Fly Me to the Moon, which practically became Sinatra's personal property, Bennett proved there's another way. The expansiveness and mystery of his reading a counterpart to Sinatra's extraordinary rhythmic tension and drive. Elsewhere, Bennett articulated the pain of love in But Beautiful, expressed romantic awe in The Way You Look Tonight, and offered gorgeous tone painting in I Left My Heart in San Francisco. His up-tempo reading of another Sinatra specialty, One for My Baby and One More for the Road, always has seemed to me too exuberant for its down-in-the-dumps message. But you had to admire Bennett for defying conventional wisdom on how to approach a song. Ultimately, virtually every tune he delivered offered a measure of surprise and wonder. Maybe that's how you keep the music playing. Must I forever be a beggar Whose golden dreams will not come true Or will I go from rags to returns My fate is up to you A nice musical trip to our Musical trip to our archives room. Hope you enjoyed that. Because that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends because we're always looking for new ones. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time. Stay safe, everyone. Bye now. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.